Brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, I spent a significant amount of time this week researching a very specific question. Oh, here it is. What is the longest amount of time that a person has ever remained dead before coming back to life? It's a very specific question. Well, in order to answer this question, I found the first thing I had to do was come up with a definition for, for death. Because as it happens throughout history, there have been tons of times when a person seemed to be dead, or the doctor thought that they were dead, or they were mistakenly declared to be dead, and then eventually, all of a sudden, in the morgue or the funeral home or at the cemetery, all of a sudden they woke back up. But I figured those stories don't really count, because those people were not really dead. Um, it was a case of mistaken identity. What I wanted, as I pondered this question, was precise medical data. What is the longest amount of time that a person has been clinically dead before coming back to life? Well, one of the things I learned this week is that clinical death, doctors say, occurs when two things have happened. First, the person has stopped breathing. Second, their heart has stopped pumping blood. And if this is the state that a person gets into, there's no more breath, there's no more pumping blood, if they remain in that state for longer than two to three minutes, brain damage occurs and they're not coming back, right? Two to three minutes of clinical death is pretty much all that a person can survive. However, there are a few interesting exceptions. So one of these exceptions involved a woman whose name was Velma Thomas. Velma Thomas of Nitro, West Virginia. Back in 2008, Velma Thomas had a heart attack. And they brought her to the hospital, and her heart kept stopping, and CPR wasn't really working, so they put her on an artificial CPR machine that just does continued chest compressions to keep circulating the blood, and an artificial breathing machine. So like, her lungs are inflating, blood is circulating, but her body's not doing any of it. The machines are doing all of it. And after 17 hours of that artificial CPR happening, they observed that her brain was showing zero function, no activity whatsoever. And what's more, her skin had begun to harden her fingers and toes had begun to curl. So it was clear, right, she had passed away. So the doctors unplugged the machines. And her family said their final goodbyes, and they packed up their belongings, and they left the hospital, going to the funeral home to start making plans for the funeral. And then, because Velma had been an organ donor, the organ donation harvesting team came in. They started preparing to harvest her organs for organ donation. Thankfully, they kind of took their time setting up their equipment, because while they were doing it, one of them noticed something. Velma was moving her arm, and then she coughed, and then she started talking, and she sat up and said, hey, where's my son? And the whole room of people just absolutely could not believe it, because Velma had been clinically dead for 17 hours, no brain function. She had now been off of all machines for 10 full minutes, normally you'd have brain damage after two minutes, it's been 10 full minutes after the 17 hours, and she just popped back up to life. And she wasn't in some kind of an impaired state, she was actually very healthy. They, they interviewed her at the hospital and she was up and talking, and pretty soon she was able to go home again. And so people have just scratched their heads trying to figure out 
how did, did this happen? And some have theorized that maybe it was because they lowered her body temperature to prevent brain damage, that that had something to do with it. Or maybe her chest had been so compressed so many times that it sort of sprang back. But nobody had ever heard of something happening like this before, not after 17 hours. So I listened to an interview with the doctor that was there that day, and this is what he said. He said, there are some things that as doctors and nurses we have no explanation for. And this is one of those things. He finally just said, it's a miracle. So Velma had no reason to be alive. And as far as I know, not only was she in 2008, but I think she still is. I think this woman is still living because she's only 59 years old when this happened. <clears throat> so in modern times, this would appear to be the record. 17 hours of clinical death plus 10 minutes off of all machines before coming back to life. Pretty impressive. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it would be interesting to talk to Miss Velma and ask her about her experience? I would love to interview this woman. Or how about this? Would it not be even more interesting to gather together a whole room full of people who are survivors of clinical death? Even if it was just for a few minutes, even if it was just for a few seconds, a whole room of people who had been declared clinically dead and had come back, and there are people like this all around the world, could you imagine gathering all of them together for like a dinner party and asking these people about their experiences? Uh, what was it like? Did they have an out-of-body experience? Did they see something of the afterlife? More than that, what is their life like right now? Like, what do they think when they wake up every morning? Do they view every day as a precious gift because they literally died and came back to life? I don't know, but this would be a fascinating group to talk to, wouldn't it? Survivors of clinical death, a truly elite fraternity. But if you go back even earlier in history, you'll find that there's an even more elite fraternity there. And it's the group of people who experience not just clinical death for a few minutes, but complete total death, like for days, complete biological death, they were gone, until Jesus came to them, told them to get up, and they came back to life. This is a very elite small group of people. In fact, I only know of three people from the Bible that this happened to. The first one was a 12-year-old girl, the daughter of a man named Jairus. She had been dead for so long that mourners were gathering for her funeral. But the funeral ended up getting called off because Jesus came walking into the room where her body was lying, grabbed her by the hand. He said, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately she did. Second person in this super elite club would be a young man from the, from the village of Nain. And maybe that's ringing a bell for you. He was from a town called Nain, and he was leaving behind a widowed mother with no one to provide for her. This young man had been dead for so long that his funeral was over, and they were carrying his body out to the graveyard to be buried. Jesus happened to be passing through town, intersected with the burial procession, walked up and touched the casket that that man was in, and he said pretty much the same thing. Young man, I say to you, get up. And he did. And the third member of this very elite fraternity would be Lazarus, who we heard about in our gospel reading today. He died. He was buried in a tomb. He then stayed in a tomb for a full four days until Jesus walked up, said, Lazarus, come out, and he did. So I think 
four days in the tomb, this is the all-time world record. Uh, and this is pretty impressive. Again, how fascinating would it be to meet with and interview any of these people, but especially how interesting would it be to talk to Lazarus? Like people have asked me the question before, if you could have lunch with any person from the Bible, who would it be? If it's not Jesus? If it's not Jesus, I think I would probably choose to have lunch with Lazarus. This guy fascinates me. I would love to hear more of his story. We don't actually know a ton about Lazarus from the Gospels, but kind of the main thing that we do know, based on different sections from the different writers, is we understand Lazarus was a good personal friend of Jesus. He's a close personal friend of Jesus. And that's kind of cool, because we think of Jesus, we're talking about it with the kids, right? What do we think of Jesus doing? He's doing all these miracles, he's healing all these people, he's preaching to thousands of people, he's a, a public figure. But in his personal life, Jesus had regular day-to-day -day friends, because Jesus was a regular person. He was not a regular person, he's the son of God, but he was a real human being with real human friends. And a few of those friends were two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother named Lazarus. One day, though, Lazarus got sick very sick, so sick that he died really, really fast. And Lazarus must have had more friends than just Jesus. Lazarus must have been a popular guy, because John writes in his gospel, many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Many, many people had come to this funeral. And you'd expect that Jesus would have been there too. Right? To comfort and encourage his friends on what was probably the hardest day they'd ever had in their whole life. You'd expect Jesus to have been there too. And surprisingly, Jesus was nowhere to be found. It says when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And only then he finally said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. By the time Jesus got there, not only had Lazarus died, but his body had been lying in a tomb for a full four days. Now, I don't think it's real hard to imagine how Mary and Martha must have felt about this. They must have been super frustrated. First, because Jesus, their friend, was not there for them at the funeral on the toughest day of their life. But secondly, because Jesus was this amazing healer, right? Wasn't this Jesus thing? He's constantly going around healing people with every type of a physical ailment. Could he not take time this once to heal someone who is actually part of his personal life? Could he not have taken time just this once to heal the person who was his close friend? So I think Mary and Martha are pretty frustrated. And you can tell. They have different personalities. You know, Martha's the more outgoing one. Mary's the more reserved one. But it just tells us when Jesus came to visit, Mary did not come out of the house to meet him. He just stayed inside. Martha came out, but when she talked to Jesus, you can feel the frustration in her voice. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's a lot packed into that sentence, isn't there, if you look at it. I mean, first of all, Martha knows that Jesus is the Lord. He's God. She believes that he's true God with all God's power. She knows that he has the power to prevent people from death, to heal people's sicknesses. He's done it before. So you can see her faith in who Jesus is, and yet you can also see her frustration. He could have saved her brother. He chose not to. 
as you think about those mixed feelings from Martha, I wonder if you've ever felt those mixed feelings yourself. Where on the one hand you have faith in who God is and you know he's going to take care of you and you trust that he will, and yet at the same time, you also have a lot of frustration. Why is God letting it go down like this? Why doesn't God make it different? Why doesn't God make it easier? You ever have that combination of mixed feelings, faith combined with frustration? I know that I do. So these are the things that Martha is processing as they go down to the gravesite. And uh, it's she and Jesus and her sister Mary and this whole crowd of onlookers who are at the funeral are kind of coming with them. And uh, Martha then looks at Jesus and sees the tears running down his face and remembers how much he loved her brother. And we're told that the onlookers are whispering to each other, look how much he loved him. And others are saying, yeah, but he healed all these other people. He healed the blind man recently. Could he not have healed this one man? So these are the different uh, things that Martha is processing. And then Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. What do you think Martha makes of this statement? She says, well, thanks, Jesus. Thanks for the encouragement. I, I have faith. I know he's going to rise again at the last day. This is, you know, this is encouraging, but maybe this is not real encouraging right now because I miss my brother right now. And Jesus responds and says, well, talking about resurrections, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha says, yeah, I believe this. Uh, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So faith mixed with frustration. They go, they pick up Mary, and they walk to the tomb. Jesus is standing there. Tears are rolling down his cheeks. He's processing. He missed the funeral. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says the thing that nobody is expecting him to say. He says, roll away the stone." And people are looking at Jesus like he's crazy. Like, come on, Jesus, no. And people are looking at Mary and Martha like, what is their reaction going to be? And finally, Martha says what they're all thinking. Lord, by this time, there's going to be a bad odor because he's been in there for four days. He's dead, Jesus. You missed the funeral. You missed the viewing. The time for seeing your friend is over. It's over, Jesus. Just let it go. But Jesus refuses to let it go. Instead, he says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Roll away the stone. So you're looking at each other, right? And finally, they roll away the stone. And Jesus looks up to heaven. He says a prayer to his heavenly Father. Then he looks into the black mouth of that cave. In a loud voice he speaks, Lazarus, come out. And nobody would have believed what happened next except that they were there and they saw it. It says the dead man came out. And as you read the verses the way it's described, it's a shuffling, a shuffling kind of, he's all tied up with these grave clothes. So he's, maybe he's like hopping out to the front of the cave. And Jesus says, take the grave clothes off this poor guy and let him go. And then John just ends the narrative right there. And he leaves it to us to get to imagine the rest of this scene that followed. Like brothers and sisters running towards each other, half stumbling with excitement and falling into each other's arms. 
And maybe like you picture Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus in this big group hug with tears dripping down all their faces. Because it's, I mean, Jesus has done miracles before, but this is next level. This is unreal. Uh, Lazarus had been dead for four days, and in front of everybody, Jesus calls him back to life. John writes, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus just did, believed in him. Well, no kidding. Incredible. Well, let's press pause here on the Lazarus account, and let me just ask you this question. Is there anything about this resurrection story that seems familiar? A big walk-in tomb. A big stone rolled away. A body that's been in there for days and days and days. Grave cloths that aren't needed anymore. Does this remind you of anything? What do you, what do you see out here? These little crosses, right? That maybe gives you a clue of what this is connecting us to. The, the resurrection of Lazarus is so similar to the resurrection of who? Jesus, right? It's a walk-in cave. It's a roll-away stone. It's multiple days. It's unused grave cloths. And it's only going to be a few months after this miracle that Jesus himself dies on the cross and three days later comes walking out of his tomb alive. So we're now getting this theme, like towards the end of Jesus' ministry and leading up towards Easter. And the theme is this. In Lazarus' resurrection, and even more in his own, Jesus proves, as the Son of God, he has absolute authority over death. Jesus has absolute authority over death. And that's important because death touches everyone, doesn't it? It's been said there's only two things for sure in life. Death and taxes. And it's funny because it's true. And no matter who you are, and no matter where you're from, no matter how successful or unsuccessful your life on earth may be, eventually it's going to end. Eventually we all die. And sad as that is, deep down we also know that we deserve it. The Bible says it this way. It says the wages of sin is death. So sin and death are connected. It's because of sin that death came into the world. It's because of our sin that death comes into our life. And if we think we don't deserve those wages, then maybe we should just take a closer look at our resume. Think through your life, like very briefly. Think of it maybe super fast forward. But the different things at different times of life. We've got a childhood filled with disobedience and selfishness all in our own ways. We've got teenage years filled with lust and laziness, all in our own ways. We've got adult years marked by impatience and anger. We've got older years that are marked with bitterness and resentment, all in our own ways. But no one is immune. We all see evidence of sin at different stages of our life. And so, we also all see evidence of death coming into our life. It's not just that we lose other people, it's we see it in our own body. Our cells die and break down. Our joints wear out. Our hair becomes gray. Our skin starts to develop wrinkles. Uh, the older we get, the more we get diagnosed with different conditions and diseases. And we start taking more and more medications that we have to take. But you know, really, it's just from the very moment that we're born, we start this inevitable process of dying. It's not a pleasant thought, 
But it's true. Like, these are the great problems. This is the great problem humanity faces. It's really one thing, sin and death connected. We say, if only we had a solution for this. If only there was a fix for sin and death. But what we learn from this account of Lazarus's healing is that Jesus is the fix. God sent Jesus to take away sin and death in one fell swoop. So you think about it. Jesus said all the time, I'm here to take away sins. Right? Jesus said, I'm here to, to wash your sins away, to make you right with God. And that sounds wonderful, but no one can see God's sin book. right? So anybody can sort of say this. I'm here to make you right with God. Okay. There's no proof. But in raising people like Lazarus from the dead, and particularly in his own resurrection from the dead, Jesus provided proof. Sin and death are inseparably connected. You can't have one without the other. If Jesus has power over death, that means he must also have complete power over sin. And that is why Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Because like Mary and Martha, and like us, they could do the math. If Jesus is able to take away death, he must also be able to take away sin. And if Jesus was able to raise Lazarus from his grave, he must also be able to raise me from my grave. And he can. And he will. So I spent probably an unnecessary amount of time this week researching this very specific question. What is the longest amount of time that a person has remained dead, clinically dead, before coming back to life? It was a fascinating perusal of the internet. I found that uh, Velma Thomas had been clinically dead for 17 hours plus those 10 minutes before she came back to life. Pretty impressive. Lazarus was in the grave four straight days until Jesus called him out. Extremely impressive. Probably the most impressive miracle Jesus ever did. But do you realize that you are going to shatter both of those records? You realize that? Jesus died on the cross for you. And Jesus washed your sins away. And that means that ultimately, in the long run, Jesus also washed your death away. This means the day is coming when, like Lazarus, you are going to come walking out of your tomb or out of your urn or out of wherever your ashes have been scattered. And like Lazarus, you will be fully restored, healthy and strong, blinking in the glorious sunlight. Like Lazarus, you are going to be surrounded by loved ones throwing their arms around you with happy tears streaming down all of your faces. But unlike Lazarus, you are not going to come out to a world that is still broken by sin. Unlike Lazarus, you are not going to come out and have to one day die again. God is going to bring you out of your grave into the new heaven and new earth, the perfect place that he will create for all his children, a place where sin and death are only vague memories of the past, and all things are finally the way that they should be. Way back in Old Testament times, way before Lazarus, way before Jesus, there lived a man named Job. You might remember that Job had a really, really hard life. And so Job longed for this day, the day of resurrection. And we heard Job's words in our first reading. We'll hear them again. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, 
He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And our hearts yearn within us too, longing for the day that we will get to be with God forever. Because we have a Savior who took our death and gave us his life in exchange. Amen.